0: Now, over the last few weeks, we've seen that faith and finances are intimately related to one another. They're intertwined. They're interdependent on each other. Our our financial choices, in many ways, are like a thermometer. They, They register a reality of our faith. They register a status of our Christian faith. Now, the reason this is, is because of what we've been hearing in scripture, that God is the creator of all things and all things belong to him. We heard this in the song, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. Everything belongs to God. We bring nothing into this world, Job says, book in the Bible, we bring nothing into this world and we take nothing out of it. In other words, everything we possess is a gift to us from God. This is something that we really need to be reminded of again and again and again. In James it says that every good gift comes from God. In 1 Corinthians it says that everything that comes to us ...is a gift from God. Everything we own is a gift. Now, it's not only... ...that God owns all things... ...because He created all things... ...but it's also that when God took on flesh... ...and He died on a cross... ...He did that in order to redeem us... ...to buy us from sin... ...and from death. So my point is not that we are obligated to God only because He created all things. And it's not that we're obligated to God because He redeemed us, He freed us from bondage. That's true. My point is that the God who freed us from bondage actually took ownership of us in His redemption of us. We were owned by sin and death. And now He took us from that and He owns us. It's not that we owe Him things because of our redemption. It's that in the act of redeeming, He took ownership of us. And it's by this ownership that we continue to experience redemption. And it's that ownership that guarantees our permanent redemption. See, that's different than saying, I'm, I'm, I'm motivated by thankfulness. It's commenting on a reality that exists at the heart of our redemption, we belong to God. To be a Christian is to be someone who lives with Jesus in charge of your life. He is your owner. He's my owner. And, and, and here's the thing. The Bible doesn't present this as oppression. In fact, those who know it, know it as rest. You try owning yourself and see how restful that is. So when it comes to our possessions, in other words, we are twice over stewards. We're not owners. We're custodians. All things belong to God. A steward is someone who lives in a place they don't own and makes use of resources that don't belong to them. We belong. And everything we have belongs 100% to God. All we have is His to be used according to His will, we live in this world as stewards of this world, and of all, we've been entrusted with caring for all that God so generously allows us not to have, but to manage. And we're accountable to God for whether we prove to be good stewards or bad stewards. In other words, stewardship or not is about recognizing who's the owner. Or not, and bad stewardship is either because we misunderstand ownership, or we're rebelling against we do what we do know. Stewardship, in other words, is both our obligation and our privilege. It's both obedience and a gracious response to the unrivaled generosity of a God who didn't have to give us beautiful sunsets. Beggars that we are. Now, it's interesting to me that when our government builds projects for the poor, they are ugly. And when our God builds sunsets for even more impoverished people, they are not ugly. It's it's an unrivaled, extravagant embarrassment ...of generosity. Now, this morning, we're going to get down and dirty in the details. For the last two weeks, I haven't been meddling in your business. I've been talking theoretical and abstract about stuff. But in Scripture, we see that not only are we supposed to use all of our resources in a way that pleases God. See, that's not so offensive because it's not too particular. You're left to work out the details. But we see that in Scripture, God has specific plans for how we use specific amounts of our money. And we're going to look at that this morning. Generally speaking, there are two specific ways of giving that the Bible talks about. We're going to talk about one this week and one next week. One is the tithe and the other is the free will offering. One is, one, one is a figure God picks. The other is a figure you pick. So this week, the first figure Next week, we'll look at the issue of voluntary giving, free will giving. Let each man determine in his own heart what he'll give. We'll talk about that next week. But this week, we're going to start by talking about tithing. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Leviticus chapter 27. It's way to the left, almost to the note your mother wrote you when she gave you the Bible. Leviticus 27. If you need to use your table of contents, is it cold? Well, well. Well, somebody make sure the thermostat is on 64. And, yeah. Is it on that, Zeke? It's on that? Right. Maybe put it on 66. All right. That was a segue to so you could find Leviticus 27. We're gonna, there's so many passages in the Bible that deal with the tithe. We're going to focus in the Old Testament primarily on one passage. Leviticus 27, starting in verse 30. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds and flocks and every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither Shall he make a substitute for it? You know, you can't pick like, oh, that one's really good. Huh? Let's slip in the bad dude. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute become holy. It's kinda like my mom. If we made a bet growing up, she owned the bet. Any any kid betting, she got it from both of them. And so it's sort of like that. <laughs> Except my mom's not the Lord. I didn't know it at the time, but it shall not be redeemed. <laughs> Now I'll point out four things about tithing in this passage. Again, there are a lot of passages, but for the sake of somewhat brevity this morning, we're going to start here with four things. Number one, tithe means ten percent. Today the term tithe is often used about all giving. People talk about tithing fifty dollars when they make two thousand. It's not a tithe. Tithe means ten percent. A tithe on two thousand is two thousand times point one zero, which works its way out not to fifty, but to two hundred. Now, an Israelite could donate 2% or 4% or 6% or 20%. But you, you tithe 10%. That's for num- number one. Number two, in the Old Testament, the, pl- the tithe applied to everything, not to some things. Whatever resources a person received from their work, and this was generally an agricultural society, right? The monetary Money functioned in a different way there than it does with us. Whatever resources a person received from their work, whatever they had, it was understood that God provided all of it. And 10% of it, he said, give back to me through the tithe. This applied to everything, not to some things. Number three, the tithe was holy to God H O L Y. The word holy means set apart. The tithe was to be set apart and given to God and not used for any other purpose. It belonged to the Lord, not to the people. Therefore, the people didn't give a tithe. They repaid a tithe. Now, this is really important. When the Old Testament talks about tithe, it, ne- it uses words like bring or present or take or pay. It does not use the word give. It's not a gift. You know, when I pay my mortgage each month, that's not a gift to the mortgage company, right? I bring my mortgage. I pay my mortgage. I present my mortgage. But I'm not, it's not a Christmas. You know, I don't wrap it up and give it to them and expect them to somehow respond like I just gave them a gift. An Israelite paid tithes out of obedience. It wasn't optional whether he wanted to or not. Now, like I said earlier, the Old Testament also talks about free will offerings. This was the whole give as you wish or give as you're led type of offering. And the emphasis there was not on the amount, it was on the willingness. A free will offering was according to your will. And the emphasis of the free will was give what you feel led to give. It was not mandatory, it was voluntary. The tithe, on the other hand was something that God expected no matter where your heart was in the situation, right? Does my mortgage company care if I'm smiling or frowning when I write the check? Now, God desired for his people to pay their tithe joyfully, but he didn't require. It. In the Old Testament, no one ever had to say, I feel led to tithe. No one ever had to pray, God, would you like me to give 10% or 8% or 12%? This month. The answer had already been given in scripture very clearly. Voluntary giving started after 10%. The whole praying about what God wants me to do started after the 10%. We'll talk more again about that next week. So the tithe was never a ceiling for giving in the Bible. It was always the floor. It was always the starting point. It was a beginning point. Beyond it. God's children gave more, much more. We'll see next week. And they would give more depending on opportunities and and options. The tithe was a demonstration of obedience. Voluntary offerings was a demonstration of love and joy and worship. The Israelite tithe because God told them to. They gave above and beyond in voluntary ways because they wanted to. These are two different things in the Old Testament. Let's look briefly at one more passage in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, this passage that Nancy read to us. Nancy, I wish you had read it faster. I mean, these kind of passages we shouldn't sit and listen to very long, right? Forcing us to weigh the words. Hurry up, woman. Get through with the passage. Malachi chapter 3, the whole passage, but just focusing in on verse 8. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? See, isn't that the kind of language we would use with someone not paying their mortgage? Not with this free will thing. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you, God? And God answers very simply, in your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes, all 10% into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. It's the only place in the Bible where people are given permission to test God. In other places, they're condemned for testing God. Now, just two things here. Number one, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Once again, we see that giving anything less than the full 10% was theft. Because the owner who owned all 100% said this 10% has to be used in this particular way. Now, it doesn't mean that by giving the 10%, he doesn't own the rest. It just means the owner, who's an absentee landlord in some ways, and has left us right, managers, has said, I've got to have this 10% used in this particular way. Anything less was thievery. Number two, the tithe, and this is... Mentioned in this passage, and it's throughout the Old Testament. We don't have time to look at all the passage. The tithe was for the religious system. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Now, that's just a hint to the way it was used throughout the Old Testament. That there may be food in my house. It was brought to the temple in order that the temple, the religious system, may be adequately maintained. That was the purpose of it. In other words, God says everything belongs to me. Ten percent of it, I won't I want you to give it to me. And since I don't have an address you can mail stuff to, this is my address. You give it to the temple, to the religious system. And in doing that, it's being given to me. And this is the way I want it to be used. I want it to be used for maintenance of the religious system. Now, in the Old Testament, there were actually three tithes. And they, they, we're, we're pretty sure there's some debate, but... Most scholars agree today that they cumulatively had their effect and they added up to around 23%. There was two tithes a year and then every third year a third tithe. Um, and these tithes were primarily used, primarily used for three things. For the upkeep of the ministers, the priest. Because it was an agricultural society, the priest had no land. If you have no land in a land-based society, you have no way... Of, I mean, there's not a Walmart. I mean, how are they going to make... Their money, how are they going to live? So that was the first thing. The second thing was the upkeep of the temple system. The buildings and all that kind of stuff. And the third, that third tithe that came in once every three years was used for those who had no land. Not just the priest, them, but also the widow, the orphan, and the resident alien. Because, you see, this is really an elegant issue. God connected His blessings to the fruit of the land. And so in this powerful passage in Deuteronomy, we don't have time to look at, God was saying, you must give the alien and the widow and the orphan and the priest who have no land the dignity of receiving my blessings by bringing the fruit of that land and giving it to them. And there's a lot to say in there about how a welfare system must bestow dignity by tapping the disenfranchised in to the way in which a society understands blessing. Now, these three tithes, 23%, in some ways they're analogous to taxes today. In some, some of that way, our, well, our, ta- our taxes to our government, part of what they go to, is kind of a welfare system, though it's not a one-to-one corollary. Um, but what we must see is that the first and primary use of this money was for the religious system, for these priests, These people, these pastors and ministers and missionaries and ministry assistants, this is what they would be today. That Maybe those we would call vocational ministers. The rest of the ministers, maybe we would call the non-vocational ministers, the lay ministers, they were to be gainfully employed to support the vocational ministers and the cost of that ministry. And it was through the tithe that God worked out a system for that to be accomplished. Now, the tithe was paid to God by giving it to the temple, and then the temple assigned it out to the support of pastors, priesthood, whatever, and the impoverished. Now, like I've already said, Israel was a nation, like it was a spiritual community, so these funds, some of them, in some ways, equate to the way we use taxes today. Now, that's an overview of tithing in the Old Testament. What about today? We're not Jews. We're Christians. And there's more to our story than the Old Testament. We have an Old Testament and a New Testament. And the end of a story determines how you interpret the beginning of the story. Right? You've seen the sixth sense? Is it fifth sense? I always forget Sixth sense, right? You get to the end and then you understand the whole story is to be read in a different way. So we've got to deal with this. As Christians living today, our Bible doesn't stop there, which means the story doesn't stop there, which means you can't interpret it based on that alone. With the coming of Jesus, some things changed. The big question is, did tithing change? Are we stealing from God today if we don't take 10% to? The church, if we don't pay 10% of our income to God by bringing it to the church, are we stealing from God today? Now, some people say, as Christians, we do not live under the law of the Old Testament, but we live under grace. Oh, you guys have heard this before. And tithing is an Old Testament law that we're no longer bound by. Nowhere in the New Testament are we commanded to tithe. Tithing is bondage to the law. Jesus died to set us free from the law If you tell somebody to pay 10%, you're you're striving against the very death, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus. In the Old Testament, you had to give 10% as this argument goes, but in the New Testament, you give in a voluntary way as the Spirit of God leads you. The funny thing to me is that people who say that typically give less than 10%, which seems to be rather self-serving. Not to make light of it, it is a complicated issue. It's really tricky. And my thoughts have changed on it more than once over the years. Twice, two major shifts in my thinking on this one. Many people who love God and give generously disagree. For years, um, I believed that you had to give 10% and I gave more. And then for about 15 years, I believe 10% was Old Testament law and I still gave more. Um, I'm pretty convinced that we're bound by 10%, and I'm going to show you why, okay? Here's here's what I see. Let's go and look at two passages in the New Testament that talk about this. Oh, by the way, people who argue for 10% or no 10%, they all agree on one thing. In the New Testament, you give more than that. They're just arguing about if you sin when you give less. So it's not about do I get off the hook or not. It's how about it's about how am I on the hook? <laughs> Matthew twenty three. This passage I read, where Jesus says, "Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, right? We saw in the Old Testament you tithe everything that comes into you. They were paid because they were religious leaders. They were th- the part of their." Um, Part of the way they saw the bounty of God in their life was through their, either their garden or the way they were paid, which came out to be herbs at times. You tithe mint and dill and cumin, which are also very little things. You know, cumin is little, dill is little bitty seeds. kind of. And you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guide, straining out a net and swallowing a camel. Now look, the long and short of this, I believe, is that Jesus is endorsing tithing. He says you ought to have done that. But, you, but do that without neglecting the weightier matters. So here's for me. Jesus endorses it. Don't neglect it. It's not as essential. It doesn't let you off the hook of justice and love and faithfulness and mercy. But it is to be done. The fact is, in the New Testament, Jesus never once suggested that the floor set by tithing was invalid. So you can make the argument two ways. You can say, well, the New Testament never commands it. Or you could say the New Testament never discounts it. There are many things in the Old Testament that are assumed in the New Testament that the Bible just doesn't recover because it's one story. It doesn't have to cover all the ground again. And there are many things. And the big debate is, is tithing one of them? I think here Jesus is giving us an interpretive key that tithing is assumed. The simple fact is that the ceiling of Christian giving in the New Testament is far above 10%. When Jesus told the disciples to go the second mile, his assumption was that they had gone the first mile. That they now go beyond. Often in the New Testament, Jesus says, In the Old Testament, I told you, don't murder. But look, I'm telling you, it is so much more deep than that. Don't even get mad at people in your heart. In the Old Testament, I told you, don't have adultery. But I'm telling you, I've got an even deeper standard than that. We see this move often in Scripture, right? Where the Old Testament is just a floor, and, I, and Alec and I were talking some of, about a total different other thing, and he was saying being raised by a psychologist, his mom's a psychologist, he's learned the incredible power of all of us for self-deception. Sometimes we've got to really ask, is my, is my argument about tithing theological, or is it self-protection? And I'm trying to come to grips with that. I'm trying to show you how to read Scripture. Now look, another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13. This one is so important. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul is writing to Christians in Corinth. See, some people will say, well, that passage with Jesus talking to the Pharisees, they were still under the law. That's how some people read that. That was prior to his death. Well, here's a passage after his death talking not to Jews, but to Gentiles. And notice how Paul handles the Old Testament command about tithing. Starting in verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Now he's talking about the way the Old Testament worked. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Here Paul reminds the church that in the Old Testament economy there was a system in which the Levites, the ministers who worked in the temple, lived off the tithes, brought to the temple. And in verse 14 he says, in the same way. New Testament gospel ministers function. Now, at the very least, Paul is saying that those who spend their lives in the service of the word of God should be supported by the rest of the Christians. But since he draws attention to the way it was done in the Old Testament as a model, it seems likely that tithing would have been the early Christian guideline, if not the mandate. In other words, when we tithe today, and I mean by that 10%, we honor a principle and plan that that God invented to sustain the ministry in the Old Testament. And it seems that it sustained the New Testament ministry as well. And the fact is, we have no historical evidence from the record of the early church. I don't have time for it in this sermon, but Clement of Alexandria, Irenaeus, Augustine, Jerome, we can just march through the centuries after the New Testament. Bam, bam, bam even within living memory of the New Testament. And we see that there is no historical record that the early church ever retreated from believing that the tithe was a mandatory minimum. I mean, I really wish, and I might bring out some of this next week, how the early church used the same language. When people don't give the 10%, they rob God. They, they use all the same language. They said it's a debt to God. It's a payment to God. Now, what about legalism? Some will say, obviously oh, this just sounds really legalistic, but in reality, any holy and good habit can degenerate into legalism. Church attendance, prayer, Bible reading, but that, the, their ability to be used in legalistic ways doesn't make them illegitimate. Anyone who stops going to church or praying or reading scripture for fear of it becoming legalistic is approaching it from entirely the wrong angle. Every New Testament example of giving without exception is beyond the tithe. Every single one. None falls short of it. The assumption being, I think, that it's the floor. That that's what they were trained in and they never retreated back from that. So let me wrap all of this up with seven kind of practical points. Number one. I think it's wise to see the tithe as training wills. This is where God started with His people in history. It's God's historical method to get His people on the path of profoundly sacrificial, generous giving. <laughs> I would say to you, if you say you don't need the tithe to teach you how to give, then do a simple exercise add up all of your resources multiply by 0.10 i'm talking your income your insurance provision by your employer because that's a provision to you your retirement provision by your employer that's a provision multiply times 0.10 and if you give more than 10% you're right you don't need training wheels. you've already learned But if you give less than 10%, I would say to you, consider the fact that you might have produced an argument that's self-serving. Number two, 10% was never a maximum standard, and I believe that today it's merely a starting point. And it's still not the finish line of giving. It's still the starting block. It's the benchmark for Christians. Look, if the Old Testament believers only started with the tithe but didn't stop there, why should f- Christians who have so much more feel inclined to stop there? In fact, that move I just made, if in the Old Testament they gave 10. why should? That move is what the early church gave, that passage that Jacob read us out of Acts. They're voluntarily, incredibly responding to God's grace. We must realize that 10% hardly fulfills the radical demands of discipleship and stewardship placed on God's people in the New Testament. And I know that this is hard. And Jesus had a word for that. A cross. For many of us, not all of us, There are people who it is so easy for them to give far more than 10%. And by the way, it has nothing to do with income level. Do you know that in America and around the world, the lower a person's income, the greater the percentage they give to the church? I mean, think about this for a minute. In the Old Testament, they were a poor agrarian society susceptible to the vicissitudes of nature. And they gladly gave 23% as an obligation. We'll see next week how they joyously gave more than that. These passages in the New Testament, right? In, a, in the Roman Empire where Christians were doubly without a safety net, where they're giving out of their poverty. Look, around the world, this sermon is most needed, not among the poor in Africa. I mean, there are, recently there have been all sorts of statistics coming out about giving in America, The higher you go up the socioeconomic ladder, the more, the lower your giving gets at a direct ratio. The average giving of the highest giving group of Christians in America, all the research indicates, is around 2.3% per family. Number three, I would say this tide still belongs to God. And there's a word for taking money that doesn't belong to us. Stealing. We talked about this last week, right? Three ways of living. Taking, getting, and giving. Our first debt is to God. So pay God first in your list list of debts. Some people have said to me, Aubrey, we've got so many debts. We've, We've got to pay these off before we tithe. And I would say, God should be first on your list. of. Don't look at the tithe as a gift. The tithe has always been conceived of as a debt. The greatest debt anybody owes. And God named it that. I didn't pick that name up as a way of getting at it. Our first debt is God, so pay God first. And don't confuse your tithe with the notion of voluntary giving. And don't think your heart has to be in it. That, remember I said tithe is training wills. Your heart doesn't have to be in it. The tithe is the minimum. I know that in my life and in so many people I know that it is tithing that taught them, me, to give generously. It's not generosity that works you up to tithing. That's not the way it functioned in the Bible. And I've never seen it actually. I can tell you so many people who profound spiritual breakthroughs have occurred in their life as they started with, look, We could make the same argument about sexual morality from the Old Testament, couldn't we? God wants your heart to be in being pure, but does He really care at the end of the day? No. Not on that issue. Number four, the Bible makes no distinction between sources of revenue when it comes to the tithe, and if it comes in, it's income. God doesn't tag monies tax-exempt. The source of material blessing is not the point. If I receive a $500 gift... As I read all of this, the first 50 is to be given to God through the church as a way of saying all of it belongs to God and all of it was provided by God. If it's a provision, it comes from the provider. That's what I see in in the scriptures. Number five, number five. (laughs) We pay God our tithe by bringing our tithe to the church. Now, there was a shift, right? In the Old Testament, they brought it to the temple. But in the New Testament, we see these passages. They brought them and laid them at the apostles' feet. That's all the same language until you get to the location. Because there was a shift between the temple and the church. The tithe given to the church is the way we deliver the debt payment. And then the church uses the money to pay its bills, support the ministers, and do lots of things. We saw this in the Old Testament and we saw it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's still being used that way. This is the normal pattern. Our tithes, our full tithes should go to the local church. I do believe there are exceptions. I don't think it, that we mean that we give to a church who hoards funds or spends them on frills and monuments to ego or posterity. But before you stop giving your tithe to the local church, I think you should consider a few things. Because again, as Alec pointed out to me Thursday night, the human ability for self-deception is very deceiving. (laughs) I would ask yourself two things before you shift your tithe. I do believe there are exceptions. Before you claim an exception. Number one, is it possible that your church leaders are in a better position than you to judge what is worthy and what isn't? Is that possible? Number two, if the Bible tells us to pay taxes to Rome, even though some of those taxes are clearly used for bad things, surely I can give to God even when I don't feel comfortable with the designation of every penny. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not, being passive-aggressive and giving you with one hand an exception and trying to beat you out of it with the other. I'm saying just consider these two pieces of Scripture, all right? Now, that being said, we must draw the line somewhere. Just because an institution claims church and you go to it, surely there is a line that can be crossed. If God's money is going to things that are denying God and groups that promote immorality. It's time to speak to your church leaders. And if you still cannot in good conscience give regularly and substantially to your church, then I would challenge you. It is time to ask God for help in finding a new church. That's my read on this. Now, one other thing about this exception. History has thoroughly demonstrated that there's much the local churches have been unable or unwilling to do. And parachurch organizations have been started, and they've done great jobs at doing that. And that's got to be a part of the mix. Now, I would say that apart from an exception, that comes under the gift of free will offerings that I'll talk about next week. That's my opinion. Number six tithe off the top. Look at Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. Verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the, with the first fruits of all you produce. Just one verse of many in the Old Testament that describes your tithing as your first fruits. In an agricultural society, as soon as they come in, get the tithe out of the stuff that comes in Up front, we give of our first and our best to the Lord because we recognize that all good things come from Him. We see God as the source of all of life and blessing. Look, people who say, I'll tithe with what's left over, generally speaking, rob God. Parents, when your children witness this regular and systematic giving of your resources to the Lord... It doesn't guarantee it, but it gives them a real good chance of growing up understanding that their infinite debt is to God and their need is to continuously and first honor God by giving to Him. Now, suppose a wife complains to her husband. I mean, this is purely theoretical. I'm just imagining the scenario. You don't give me any of your time. And suppose this theoretical husband responds. What do you mean? All my time is yours. I work all day long for you and the children. With a much nicer voice. The fact is the husband's response is hollow. The issue most likely is he doesn't give her any special time. Giving her some evenings together and some dates does not deny that all of his time is hers. It actually proves that all of his time is hers. This is why God declares one day and seven belongs to him. Is he saying, give me one day and seven and you can have the rest? No, he's saying, give me one day and seven as a way of proving to me that all of your days you see as belonging to me. Giving God a tenth of our income does not deny that the other ninety is ours. It proves that we actually believe the other ninety. Is ours. The tenth is yours, O oh Lord, in a special way because all of it is yours in an ordinary way. Fairly logical. I, I think the tithe should be the first check we write. That's what God taught Israel, the first fruits. And if you're a farmer, that is far more threatening than a person who knows he's getting paid on the first and fifteenth. Give God, we should tie, the, it should be the first check we write as soon as the income deposit is made into the bank. And when you write it, you put over a seal over it. If you use it for anything else, you're a thief and you're putting a seal over the other 90% that it, it, it belongs to God and we've proven it by using the first 10% in this particular way. It says, God, we trust you to deliver, to let us live to let us pay 100% of our bills on 90% of our income. My grandfather always said, Look, either give God 10% or he'll let Satan take the other 90%. And that's what, that's what Malachi says. You're under a curse. The devourer is involved in your life because of the way you're stealing from me. And God says, Give that back to me and I will step in. Listen, you can never outgive God. You can't. You can't outgive God. I. I can tell you so many people that have lived far better on 90%. This is, it has nothing to do with income. All of this was taught to a very poor agrarian community. This teaching started with the poor. It didn't start, the affluent struggle with it, not the poor. Number seven, when someone says, I can't afford to give, generally speaking, what they mean is I can't afford to change my lifestyle. They mean I can't afford to give without burdening myself. I can't afford to give without cutting into my way of living to the place where it hurts and changes things. Clement of Alexandria, he said, the best wealth is to have few desires. In conclusion, let me encourage you. If you've stolen from God, even if you did it naively and ignorantly, confess your sin, ask for forgiveness, and repent, whether you're a child, a teenager, or an adult. The path to realizing sin is always the same, whether it's sexual sin or financial sin or any kind, it's we have this incredible God that we kneel and we confess and then free of charge, He says, you are forgiven. That's great. Now at the beginning of the sermon, I said that your financial choices and habits and lifestyle are a thermometer for your Christian faith. But over the last half of the sermon, I've been pointing out that it's not only a thermometer, it's also a thermostat. And if your life is cold with the Lord, then I encourage you to get up and go to the thermostat and change it. I can't tell you... I mean, this is, this is for real. Your money is not only a good valuation of where you are with the Lord, it is a profound tool at your disposal to grow in your relationship with the Lord. It is a thermostat. It will change you. It is a path away from the dark abyss that our society is perilously approaching. I urge you, do not lightly dismiss what the Bible is saying about money. It contains a choice a choice in direct contrast to the ongoing deadly cycle of self-enrichment and self-destruction of our culture. And at its most basic level, this issue is a choice for life itself. This is a choice for the one who has given all of his life so that we can have life. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes.